Coming up on Better Place Project. And then suddenly, that kind of gave me the distance that I needed. Just a hint of distance, right? It didn't solve the whole problem, but it made me feel like, yes, you can you can have that pursuit and you can strive for it. Um, but don't let that that unmet desire undermine and and allow you to devalue all the other amazing things that you have in your life. So I actually feel like I just have more perspective now than I did before, which is there is so much to be grateful for. And I just needed to take my blinders off a bit and just start taking all of it in day to day. And I and I hope that's helpful for people who are navigating an unexpected change, which is um, to try and ground themselves in whatever has stayed stable in their reality, right? Whatever has stayed constant, because that was certainly a, a source of solace for me, including just, you know, my morning ritual of having an Indian cup of tea. It can be a very simple thing, but if it brings you joy and it's something that is sustainable and you can maintain day to day, it can really make you feel more centered in a world that is so full of chaos and confusion and can disorient you in a second. Make the world. Hey, hey, I'm Steve Norris. Welcome to Better Place Project, where each week we shine a light on amazing humans from every corner of the planet who are doing extraordinary things to help make the world a better place, including sharing their knowledge with us on how we can be living healthier, happier, more purposeful lives. I wanted to take a quick moment to give a shout out to our friends over at the Gratitude Blooming Podcast. Their co-host, Omar Brownson, has been on our show to chat about what he calls fearless gratitude. Well, Omar and I quickly realized that our shows are very much in alignment in our quest to do our part to help create a better world with a higher consciousness. So with this collaboration in mind, I invite you to check out the Gratitude Blooming podcast, where each week they share stories from the front lines of this new landscape. Teachers, healers, leaders, and so many others join them to share their emergent practices. So to add a little hope and inspiration to your day, head over and subscribe to the Gratitude Blooming podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, it's so good to be back after taking the last couple of weeks off. As I mentioned on our last episode with Jillian Turecki, which, by the way, that has been our top downloaded show in the first week than any show in our history. The feedback has just been amazing on that episode. So if you haven't listened to it, and if you're in a relationship or looking to get into a relationship, she is phenomenal. So go check that out. But anyway, as I was saying, I got hit with COVID a few days before the break was to start. So unfortunately, I spent about five days recovering as it knocked me on my butt, but two consecutive butts intended, I'm feeling back to 100% now, and I'm so stoked for today's show because it is a big guest again. Let's get to it. Dr. Maya Shankar is a cognitive scientist and the creator, executive producer, and host of the podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, which Apple recently awarded as the best show of the year in 2021. Maya was a senior advisor in the Obama White House, where she founded and served as chair of the White House Behavioral Science Team. She also served as the first behavioral science advisor to the United Nations under Ban Ki-moon, and as a core member of Pete Buttigieg's debate preparation team during his 2020 presidential run. 
Maya has a postdoctoral fellowship in cognitive neuroscience from Stanford, a PhD from Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship, and a BA from Yale. She's been profiled by The New Yorker and been the featured guest on NPR's All Things Considered, Freakonomics, and Hidden Brain. She's a graduate of the Juilliard School of Music's pre-college program, where she was a private violin student of Itzhak Perlman. By the way, she took up the violin at six and was accepted into Juilliard at the age of nine. Who does that? I, I just love this conversation with Dr. Shankar. She's just so down to earth. In fact, she insisted I call her Maya, but... She really opens up about what it's like to be a UTTL. Don't worry, I didn't know what that was either until I listened to her podcast. But she shares with us the huge challenges she's had to overcome in her life and how that led to her launching A Slight Change of Plans, her podcast. And her podcast, by the way, blends storytelling with behavioral neuroscience, all to help us understand who we are and who we become in the face of big change. This was just a fascinating conversation. She tells some great stories about her time in the Obama administration, her sometimes painful journey with her husband, Jimmy, trying to have a child. We chat about the power of initiative and what role that has played in her life and just so much more. So let's get to it. My conversation with Dr. Maya Shankar. Make the world a place. Make the world Welcome to the show, Maya. Thanks so much for having Make me, Steve. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I'd like to start with, I think, one of the reasons why you have resonated with me and a couple others that work here, but especially me here at, at Better Place Project, is that you were the youngest of four. I was the youngest of five. You, mm. one of your passions is music with the violin, of course, and... I started playing piano at the age of four, and my all my older siblings played, and my teacher wouldn't let me start because I was too young at four. And and my mom finally said, my four-year-old is the only one that would get up at the piano and play, and he's begging <laughs> me to take lessons. So He's got the natural, yeah, zest. Exactly. And you have a passion for neural, neuroscience and cognitive behavior. I'm a armchair neuroscientist. You obviously have the academic credentials. I'm fascinated with neuroplasticity. We've had a few neuroscientists on the show, so I love everything about it. But what I've learned about myself from you just in the last few days is that I am also a UTTL. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So can you explain to our audience what exactly is a UTTL? (laughs) Yeah, so this... um this phrase emerged in conversation that I had with my uncle and aunt in India. Um, I was talking about my my philosophy on life, and I was talking about the fact that my husband and I, despite being so similar, uh, diverge when it comes to our rel- respective philosophies on existence. And so Jimmy, my husband, is very much a, oh my gosh, how lucky are we that our consciousness came into existence. Um, if he could download his consciousness into a machine, he would to ensure its persistence. Yep. Um, he just loves this concept of feeling and thinking things. And he's just filled with endless gratitude that for whatever reason, his existence ha- occurred, right? Mm-hmm. And I have always had a very different view, which is I'm going to make the best of things now that I'm here, but I have such an allergy towards human suffering that if you were to tell me that you could rewind the clock and um, I would never come into existence, I feel like I would 
be fine with that. Be okay with that. Yeah, yeah. Neutral response to that. And yeah. so I was sharing these different philosophies with my aunt and uncle and we were visiting them in India and my aunt goes, Oh my God, I think you're a UTTL. I was like, what are you, what is that? What are you talking about? Mm. And she said, it's an unwilling traveler through life. And in that moment, I felt so heard because I've always felt some degree of resistance being here on planet Earth with fellow humans, just because, sure. again, suffering um, causes me so much distress, you know, seeing suffering others, suffering myself. As it does with me. Like, I, I just, I'm always wondering if it's worth it. <laughs> so resonated with me. And I had, I never even knew what an empath was until a few years ago. And I never thought I was one. And I finally learned that, yeah, I definitely am one. But yeah, the the just the aversion to the suffering around us. And speaking of which, you tell a story on your podcast. You talk about walking through a cemetery with your father and you're expressing this to him. Or actually, I think it was before you went to the cemetery, but you're expressing what this suffering is is doing to you. Even you were even kind of obsessing about suffering over your ki- unborn kids that yeah. how you know, how can I bring kids into this world with all this suffering? And that little moment in your essay where where you talk about that with the music playing, I was driving and I just teared up. It was oh. just so beautiful. Can you tell us about that Absolutely. moment? Absolutely. Yeah. And and for your listeners so they know. So my my podcast is called A Slight Change of Plans. And typically I interview guests about their transformative experiences, but on this latest episode, which is called Maya's Slight Change of Perspective, I actually turn inwards and I started to reflect on what had been some serious shifts for me, right? And, and how I've navigated those those psychological shifts. And so um, it, it was such a hard thing to pull together because I had to revisit some, you know, painful moments in my childhood and, and my young adulthood and anxious moments. But um, I'm really finding that this episode is resonating with people. And that's honestly touching my heart because I was definitely scared to put to put this essay out into the world. Um, but Steve, to your to your question about the cemetery. So yeah, I just got in when I was in college. I, um, you know, I'd always been very distressed by suffering, but I think I'd always assumed in my little naive young self that my kids' lives would be fine and that they would just be their lives would just be filled with giggles and happiness and joy. And then, of course, that naive bubble was burst as I got older and I understood, you know, what it would likely be like for for any given child. And I think things came to a head when I was reading about hate crimes that. Um, gay and transgender p- kids were facing. And I was just so distressed by this fact that it led to this obsessive loop of anxious thoughts around all the suffering that my kids might endure. And yeah. so as you were saying, you know, here I am like a teenager in college, having all of this anxiety around kids I don't even have yet. Um, but just the idea of their suffering and me being responsible for bringing them into this world um, was causing me a lot of pain. And so I called up my dad. Um, he works on he worked on the same campus as where I went to college, and he's a physics professor. And I and I rang him up and I said, "Pops, I'm I'm just having such a hard time with this whole idea, right? And and I feel like my whole world is under threat." And so he he said, "Why don't we take a walk?" And he took me to one of the most unusual places you would imagine a parent taking their kid in these moments, you know, um, to bring them some relief. But he actually took me to a cemetery. Um, and we walked around the cemetery and we just were confronted by all these headstones of people who had lived also very complex uh, lives that ha- carried suffering in front of us. And I just remember him telling me in that moment, you know, 
you're worried about suffering, but don't forget all suffering ends too. There's an impermanence there too. And in that moment, I found that to be probably the most reassuring message I could have received. It was a very unusual parenting style to bring your your young daughter to a, to a cemetery, but especially for inspiration, kind yes, of in exactly. a way. Yeah. But I think I think what my dad discerned all along, and and he probably is the same way. Is like we, yeah, we feel things deeply, and um, certainly when I was a kid suffering, I felt like my dad. You know, I'm one of four, right? So my dad was only ever as happy as his hap- as his least happy kid. <laughs> that yeah. was sort of how he was. He really internalized our pain and. I could kind of forecast that I would feel the same. And so caring too much was never the problem for us, right? Like yep, feeling exactly. indifference was never the challenge. He wasn't worried that by bringing me to the cemetery that day, I was going to filled with apathy and not care about life anymore. I was just so far on one end of the continuum that yep. going there and getting that perspective shift just helped me, you know, move a few inches uh, to the left, <laughs> which I think was helpful. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to this feeling of just um, feeling so immersed in existence and in our feelings and other people's feelings that sometimes they just need to cultivate a bit of distance between themselves and their experiences to survive and to feel normal. Yep. Totally agree. Can we shift gears and we'll come back to the similar topic around that, but can we shift gears? Cause I'm going to make sure we cover this. Can we talk about your first time in the Oval Office working in the Obama administration? And there was a meeting that you had prepared ahead of time, a list of your team members and a quick little snippet about them. And you included a little personal note in there about yourself. And you thought, yeah, I don't know if this is relevant to the meeting that we're having. And you elected to leave it in there. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us <laughs> about that? What happened there? Yeah. So, um, you know, I joined the Obama White House in 2013. I was interested in using my academic background. So I'm trained as a cognitive scientist. I did my postdoc in cognitive neuroscience. And I was really eager to see if we could translate insights from human behavior into improvements in public policy, right? To really make sure that we were bringing that behavioral lens to the table as we were thinking about policy and program design. Um, But the cards were kind of stacked against me when it came to building this team. I didn't have a budget. I didn't have a mandate. I had to be so scrappy in that first year or two, Steve, like knocking on every door, just trying to convince people to have organic interest in wanting to work with me and partner on these pilots. And so when eventually, you know, the president caught wind of our work and we were able to brief him in the Oval Office, I mean, I was just ecstatic because it was not only, I mean, just such a cool life experience. It was validation for the first time that my team was a real thing that was being recognized by by senior leadership. And so the night before, it was such an interesting perspective on the meeting. Um, I was both the, as the leader of the team, I was both helping the president brief get briefed for the meeting, right? I was preparing all the briefing documents in advance where I shared details about the team, the impact we had had, bios of all the team members. Um, And then I was also going to be present and and also drafting talking points for him. And then I was also Mm going to be present in the meeting so I could actually see, you know, how it unfolded. So that was a, that was pretty cool. And the night before, as I'm pulling together all the bios, I realized that the last line of my bio mentions the fact that I used to be a concert violinist and that I, I studied at Juilliard and I was a student of Itzhak Perlman. And I remember thinking, oh, I should probably just cut that out because that's not even related to my public policy life. Right. And it just feels kind of random. And then I thought, you know, the president's kind of a busy guy. What are the chances he even reads all of these bios, let alone gets to the sure. last name S because <laughs> these were yeah. in alphabetical order. Seriously. And yeah. um, so I, I just didn't think twice about it. I was like, whatever, just submitting it. And then the next day, um, he opens the door to the Oval and greets us. And then he immediately says, 
Maya, I can't believe you studied with my buddy Itzhak. And I was, I was like, what? That's and you know, so cool. Which is so cool. Perlman had played for, um, Perlman and Yo-Yo Ma had actually played for Obama's inaugura- yeah. inauguration. Yeah. And yep. so, um, that. they had had many chances to meet. He also, uh, Perlman later got the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which was another opportunity. So um, I, you know, I, I the thing that I would share about that experience is he just made me feel like a million bucks in that moment. Right. And like he cared about not only my current role, but who I was before all this. You know, he cared about me as a person. And I was just so touched that um, he would take the time and, and show that kind of thoughtfulness. And so telling, isn't it? That personal touch has really informed my own leadership style and the way that I interact, you know, with members of my team. I, I just was really moved by that. Yeah, it's it's so telling of the leader that that cares about not only the task that that uh, his colleagues are and subordinates are working on, but also to care enough about their personal life and to yeah. and yeah and. And he knows how that's going to make you feel to say, hey, I took the time to read all of this because I want to learn about you. So, yeah, nothing but admiration. I love that story. So I want to make sure our (laughs) listeners heard it. And speaking of that time in your life, you then took the initiative, okay? And I want to talk about initiative here in a minute as well because that's been a huge component of your life and your story. But you took the initiative to reach out with the help of a mentor to to someone within the White House thinking, yeah, I, you know, who am I to do anything with the White House or but maybe at the state or local level, they can put me in touch with somebody. And you sent a cold email. And from that email, you ended up to getting an email or getting a uh, an interview. And from that interview, you recommended that they create a you know, cognitive science, behavioral, essentially department. Yeah. And, and you said, Hey, how about me? I'll play this, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll take the role and build the team. And so you created this whole new role. And then I would love to hear you talk about is a, a couple of the anecdotal stories of the types of things you were able to do, taking your knowledge in, in neuroscience. And, and I love the story about the power of the default with the kids benefits program. Yeah. Yeah, so I was um I was a postdoc at Stanford at the time and I was in the basement of an fMRI laboratory with no windows for hours and I was starting to realize I'm not sure this is right for me given my personality and my desire to work closely with people before peering inside their brains. Um and so I kind of realized that maybe um maybe I needed to take another step and I took a page out of my my mom's book actually Steve because at that moment in time, I did not know what else a postdoc in cognitive neuroscience could do, right? It just felt like, okay, you become an academic or maybe a researcher somewhere, but I didn't understand what up, what are, what other opportunities could exist for me. And I remember that when I was um, nine years old and I'd been really excited about um, potentially auditioning for the Juilliard School of Music in New York, um, but my mom had very few musical connections. We were walking in New York one day and she literally just asked me if we if we could just go into the building. She's like, hey, why don't we just go in and see what happens? And from there, she struck up a conversation with um, a student and, and her mom. And we ended up auditioning on the spot for a teacher who accepted me into a boot camp and got me ready for the Juilliard audition. And the lesson from that was you know, sometimes life won't hand you the silver platter and you just have to create it yourself. Like my mom just was fearless in her willingness to try to invite an opportunity into our lives that might not have existed otherwise. And so you mentioned that cold email. That's exactly what I was doing. Um, I called my undergrad advisor. I told her, Laurie, I, um, I know you've been coaching me in this field for a really long time, but I think I want to leave. And 
maybe I'll try to be a general management consultant. Um, is that okay? And she she shared with me a story from the federal government in which they were using behavioral economics to just radically improve people's lives. So in this particular case, um, the government was offering what's called the National School Lunch Program. So it's free or reduced price lunches for low-income kids. And despite the fact the lunches were being offered to uh, millions of kids, still millions of kids were going hungry every day because their families hadn't enrolled in the program. And when they did a behavioral audit of the program, they discovered that there was a huge stigma around signing children up for a public benefits program, right? A lot of these parents are like, I work really hard. I don't want my kid depending on the government. Um, There was also a really high administrative burden when it came to filling out the complex form that was required for the program. And so they use this really elegant principle principle from behavioral economics called the power of the default. And basically what you do is you change the program from an opt-in program to an opt-out program. So if you have all relevant data on these kids, you can automatically enroll them into the school lunch program. And now parents only need to take an affirmative step if they actively want to unenroll their kids from the program. And as a result of this change, as a result of this change, um, 12 and a half million more kids were now eating lunch at school every day. And I was so moved by this example, Steve. I felt like, um, wow, okay, I need to leave the ivory tower. This is exactly the kind of work that I want to be doing. Um, and then I you know, ended up sending this cold email, which led to another cold email and a cold email from there. And eventually I um, got in, in the opportunity to uh, do an interview with a senior member of the Office of Science and Technology Policy, who was really interested in the intersection of behavioral science and policy. And um, I ended up joining the White House about five or six months later. And what was so important about that effort, because I did not have a budget or a mandate to build a team, but that was my goal, was to mm-hmm. actually build something durable that could persist through different administrations. I really had to try and get some proof of concept wins on the board. Um, so an example of that was we worked with the Department of Veterans Affairs. Love the we were story trying to too. get them. Yeah, we were trying to get them uh, to sign up for an employment and educational um, benefit that they were eligible for when they returned from their years of service. And despite the fact that we offered this program, it's very similar to the school lunch program, not enough vets were signing up. And so the Department of Veterans Affairs was very financially constrained at the time. They weren't able to put many more dollars into marketing the program. They just had one email message they were going to be able to send out to vets. And and we ended up just changing one word in this email message uh, to veterans. So instead of telling them that they were eligible for the program, we simply reminded them that they had earned it through their years of service. And that one word change led to a 9% increase in access to the program. And it's based on a principle from cognitive science known as the endowment effect. And the endowment effect um, refers to this idea that we value things more when we own them, or in this case, have earned them. Because in some sense, now we have something to lose, right? They've got the benefit and it's theirs to lose. And that made them more likely to want to actually sign up. Love, love that. If we could switch gears, let's get back to your 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 podcast, which you had mentioned is called A Slight yes. Change of Plans. But coincidentally, we've had this interview planned for I think a month, month and a half or so. And but what I didn't know and you didn't know either about my podcast is just within one week of each other, and we just with Better Place Project, we just hit our one hundredth episode. And I did a solo episode for my one hundredth where I just for the first time really and this was hard for me, poured my heart out about a really dark time in my life, going through oh, a, a divorce and infidelity. And, and 
all these things and and lessons learned from that, but I've never, it's always been about the guests. I've never talked that much about yeah. myself. And it was just interesting that I hear your latest podcast where you really poured out things that have gone gone on in your life. So can you talk, Maya, a little bit about what authenticity means to you? Yeah. You know, I started a slight change of plans um, for very personal reasons. Um, and so if we could rewind the clock a little bit and go back to 2020, I was feeling really um, overwhelmed by the rapid pace of change that was happening um, around me. And in my personal life, I was grieving the loss of, of a baby we had lost to a, a miscarriage via surrogacy. And my husband and I had never obviously been through this experience before, and, and we were at a loss for how to, to manage and and then of course there was the pandemic, um, which meant we couldn't be with people that we loved during that time. And then there was racial injustice upheaval. I mean, it just felt like everything about that moment felt unprecedented for me, and I felt completely intimidated by the changes that were happening. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I study change. As a kid, I navigated a big change where my violin career was suddenly cut short as a result of a hand injury, and yet somehow. I don't feel ready for right now, for this moment. Mm -hmm. And then I put on my cognitive science hat, Steve, and I thought to myself, okay, while the specifics of what 2020 are throwing your way may in fact be unprecedented in the context of your life or in many people's lives, um, our, human ability to our human ability to navigate change is not unprecedented. We've done this change rodeo so many times before. And... Yeah. Um, almost definitionally by virtue of being here today, it means we've all successfully survived change, right? We are and that there's resilient. There's wisdom there yeah. and there's resilience. And so I started the show out of a personal desire to learn from other people's change stories and unlock wisdom from people who have navigated remarkable kinds of changes, harrowing kinds of changes and have come out the other side. And so I only really know how to bring my most vulnerable self to the show because of the personal motivation for starting it in the first place. And there yeah. was something interesting that happened in 2021. So this is um, the episode you just referenced, which is Maya's slight change in perspective. Yeah. It's actually the second time that I've turned the mic around and, and, and shared myself personally. So last fall, my husband and I navigated a second miscarriage with our surrogate. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, it felt like equally painful in some ways to the first time we had navigated this and we were, sure. we were filled with so much surprise and, and really just devastation. Like, where do we go from here? You know? And, um, I ended up just two days later having my producer interview me, um, and in a very, very unexpected episode called Maya slight change of plans. And, uh, it happened mid season. It was while I was recording episodes for the show with other guests. And it just kind of occurred to me that, I'd asked so much of my guests up until this point, but I'd never been willing to do the same myself, right? To interrogate myself in the face of a change. So I remember calling my producer and saying, uh, you know, I'm devastated right now. And I really, I feel like I need this show right now to process my change out loud. And the important thing is it has to happen tomorrow because if we don't do the interview tomorrow, either I'm going to change my mind or I will have done too much processing of my own change experience that it will no longer be as valuable for people to hear the real-time reflections I'm having. And so we got into the studio and we recorded it the next day. And I mean, to say I've been overwhelmed by the response to the episode is just a gross understatement. I mean, it's been, it's been over, oh my God, it's been overwhelming for me to hear from listeners all over the world who have shared with me it. how... It's so touching. And that was just so amazing how you 
just so genuinely shared what a painful process and gosh, what a beautiful woman Haley is for all. I that know. was your surrogate surrogate. Yeah. Tried not once but twice and said she'll keep on doing it, you know. Um but but yeah, that's uh, just a, a beautiful, beautiful episode. I just wanted to applaud you for oh, you know, thank for, you so for sharing much. that story for sure. And it, it turns out, you know, like I only knew one way to be on the show and I kind of just leaned into it. And I just didn't know yeah. how it would be received. And so I did the I same to, thing. Scary as hell, huh? It's scary. Yeah. I can tell you have those same vibes of like, we're just going to do this and see what happens. And so it really is beautiful when you feel that, um, that you're connecting with people, you know? Yep. And well, that you are for sure. Yeah. And so it's been, yeah, it's been wonderful. Speaking of everything that, that you went through with Jimmy, your husband, not once in 2020, but twice also in 2021 with having a surrogate and and unfortunately losing the baby, the first baby, and then twins in the second one, just a, a really, really tough time for you to go through, for you to go through that. And you were then considering, you know, do we give up or should we try right again? And, and you had mentioned that the surrogate agency rep said, you know, my your future surrogate deserves your most loving self self and you felt that it wouldn't be right for you to you know shield her from the love and gratitude that yeah. you know that you feel so after going through that and you wanting to like you said distance yourself um, and you want to put in you had mentioned doing hard work putting in the hard work to make sure that if you do this again the next surrogate does get all the love and support that you have to offer. Do you mind sharing where are you at in that journey? Yeah, it's such a lovely question. I think I've made a lot of progress. Um, I'm not quite there yet, probably. I'll only know when <laughs> we we meet someone. Um, I think we one positive step that Jimmy and I took uh, a couple months ago was to kind of get back in the surrogacy <laughs> market. So, you know, we talked to our agency again and we said we were, we are interested in working with someone again. It's going to be a long waiting list just because of a lot of external factors sure. like COVID and, and whatnot. So it's probably going to be months and months and months before we actually get matched with, mm-hmm. with, with, with a match. But I do feel like I've made a lot of progress and actually, Steve, you're getting me to think in many ways, um, the biggest insight for me is something I share in that in that latest episode of mine, the slight change in perspective, which is when when we were going through the second miscarriage and when I was just feeling the lowest of lows, my husband Jimmy pushed me to engage in a gratitude exercise. And I was so resistant to wanting to do the gratitude exercise because again, it feels very discordant with grief to now be talking about all the sure. things you're you're grateful for. It's very jarring. Um, but you know, he very gently pushed me and and I ended up doing the the gratitude exercise and was starting to marvel at all of the ways my life was otherwise so full. Uh, and and so there was so much abundance there. And because I had become so focused on my pursuit of motherhood, I'd kind of just forgotten about the full backdrop of my life and and how wonderful those many dimensions are. So I rattled off a bunch of things like grateful for Jimmy, grateful for my big family and my nieces and nephews and grateful for a slight change of plans, which has brought me immeasurable joy to create and and produce um, mm-hmm. during the pandemic and has connected me with so many remarkable people. I just feel humbled to even have this as a job. Um, and then suddenly that kind of gave me the distance that I needed, just a hint of distance, right? It didn't solve the whole problem, but it made me feel like, yes, you can, you can have that pursuit and you can strive for it. Um, but don't let that 
unmet desire undermine and and allow you to devalue all the other amazing things that you have in your life. So I actually feel like I just have more perspective now than I did before, which is there is so much to be grateful for. And I just needed to take my blinders off a bit sure. and just start taking all of it in day to day. And I, and I hope that's helpful for people who are navigating an unexpected change, which is um, to try and ground themselves in whatever has stayed stable in their reality, right? Whatever has stayed constant, because sure. that was certainly a, a source of solace for me, including just, you know, my morning ritual of having an Indian cup of tea. It can be a very simple yeah. thing, but if it brings you joy and it's something that is sustainable and you can maintain day to day, it can really make you feel more centered in a world that is so full of chaos and confusion and can disorient you in a second. Amen. No, I love it. And to our final signature question, yeah, Maya, what advice do you have for us and our listeners on how we can help make the world a better place? Oh, wow. So I've been reading a lot of uh, the research in cognitive science around kindness um, and, and empathy, and it's actually in the smallest behaviors that we can be better people. It's in smiling to the stranger on the street. It's in saying hello to the barista who's preparing your, you know, your morning coffee at Starbucks um, and maybe having a conversation with them. It's, it's helping a stranger open a door. Uh, I, I feel like sometimes the problems in the world feel so enormous that we just feel like it's all too much. But there's a lot of research showing that we're a lot more affected by people's pro-social actions than we might think. We're a lot more affected by other people's actions, period, <laughs> sorry, sure period, than we might think. Yeah. And so introducing these small acts of kindness into our own lives will not only make the pe other people in the world feel better and feel like their day is happier, um, it'll, it'll enrich you, it'll nourish you. And so I really do try whenever possible to, again, just take that eff extra effort, um, make, make that intentional effort to show that warmth and kindness uh, to people that I've never met. Beautiful. Beautiful answer. For our listeners, please check out Maya's podcast called A Slight Change of Plans, which Apple recently awarded as the best show of the year in 2021. It's awesome. I've become a huge fan. You can also follow Maya on Instagram at, at Dr. Maya Schenker and her website, drmayashenker.com. That's D-R-M-A-Y-A-S-H-A-N-K-A-R.com. And we'll put that all in the episode notes. Maya, this was a blast. Thanks so much for coming. And we look forward to having you back when you have your best-selling book out. <laughs> thanks so much, Steve. I appreciate it. Special thanks to our guest, Dr. Maya Shankar. Thanks to our producer, Noah Existe, and editor, Joe Tempoco. Our music was written and performed by Algian Importante. Thank you so much for listening. If this podcast brightened your day in any way, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review. If you have any ideas for potential guests or suggestions on how we can improve our show, please email us at betterplaceprojectpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voice memo by clicking on the microphone on the homepage of our website. For updates on our show, please follow us on Instagram at betterplaceproj or head to our website at betterplaceproject.org. Look for small ways to be kind to others this week, and that will help make the world a better place. Make the world a better place. Make the world.